Welcome to Crashing the War Party. We are here days before the midterm election, and as everyone knows, Washington politics is going off the rails. What is important for us on this show is taking the temperature of how the crazy politics are affecting foreign policy and national security issues, and right now the dynamics of the Ukraine issue could be shifting, depending on who wins on Tuesday. However, as you all well know, the war party is not Democrat or Republican, but both, as is the military-industrial complex. And any effort to promote realistic, common-sense reforms in Washington will face the same uphill battle against entrenched establishment, no matter who wins the election on Tuesday. That said, we will be talking to David Hendrickson about his new book on John Quincy Adams and American foreign policy and other matters. But first, let, there's been a lot of foreign policy national security headlines this week that have fallen through the cracks as the midterms have sucked all the oxygen out of the news cycle. So we've chosen four of our uh, favorite headlines or the headlines that we think haven't gotten as much play as they should. And uh hope to suss out and, and, and flesh out some of the uh, the details of that news. So, Dan, why don't we start with your first headline? Uh, sure, no problem. Uh, so the first headline is one from Reuters, came out uh, earlier this week, uh, talking about the news being reported out of, out of Australia. Uh, the headline is, U.S. plans to deploy B-52s to North Australia amid China tensions. And so the the significance of this is that this will be an increase in the U.S. military presence in Australia. Uh, there have been bombers based there temporarily previous to this. Uh, this new plan would call for dedicated facilities uh, for as many as six B-52 bombers uh, to be there uh, on a, a more permanent basis. Uh, and that is being interpreted as a, a very clear signal to the Chinese uh, that the U.S. is increasing its military assets in the wider uh Indo-Pacific, I guess you could call it, uh, that would be the official term from the government, uh, or in the Asia-Pacific region. Um, and so this has been, uh, I think this has gotten a little bit of attention uh, since the news broke earlier this week, but it seems like it's, it's a fairly significant move that has not received enough scrutiny. And, and so one of the things that I'm concerned about with this story is that there doesn't seem to be a lot of oversight being done uh, on these kinds of moves and there, there's not a lot of careful thought about wh whether these sorts of moves are really necessary uh, i i think this deployment is probably unnecessary and, and wasteful uh, van jackson had talked about this uh, recently when he was responding to the news and and the way he summed it up was uh he said what a giant theft from taxpayers this achieves nothing except to militarize an over militarized region and, and i think that gets it right uh, the, one of the problems that we've had with our Asia policy is that it has been too uh, too heavy on the military side. Too, there's too much emphasis on on the security side and not enough attention to other issues. And this just reinforces that trend. I think it makes Australia more of a target than before, and it encourages the Chinese government to respond with provocative moves of its own. And of course, their government responded very angrily to the news when it came out. Uh, accusing the U.S. of fomenting regional instability, uh, and and I so what worries me is that these sorts of stories are, are taken in stride or or even embraced on the American side because it's prevent, presented as part of the rivalry with China, and nobody really questions the logic of that, and so policies that are deemed as anti-China don't receive nearly as much scrutiny, uh, and and so a lot of 
potentially dangerous things are allowed to just sort of slip through without the, the kind of vetting and the questions that need to be asked uh, that we really should be asking. And, and so that's why that story uh, jumped out at me. Yeah. And, you know, it, it's funny, it comes a week after or two weeks after the administration rolled out its national security strategy in which it emphasized that it, you know, while we have this competition with China, that we will continue to keep, you know, open pathways to diplomacy and cooperation on shared issues and shared challenges in the region and globally. And we really don't see that in action. I, you know, when I, oh, you know, I go into the news every morning and I'm looking at the headlines, you know, more often or not, there are pieces like this about us sending nuclear capable warplanes to um, Australia or, you know, some other um, military exercise and, and the, you know, with North uh, South Korea or Japan. And so I feel like the antagonistic militarized approach seems to take precedence, even though in policy, we say that we are open to talking and cooperation. And it, it is very frustrating because I feel like this is one of those under the radar things, which in the long run, will do nothing um, but antagonize the the current tensions that we have with China. Um, the, the second headline uh, of the day uh, came out on Monday as well, and it was from the Associated Press. They found that Afghan special forces that the U.S. trained during uh, our war in Afghanistan are now being recruited by Russia to fight in Ukraine. Um, at former three former Afghan generals told the Associated Press that the Russians want to attract thousands of these former elite Afghan commandos and put them into a foreign legion with offers of steady $1,500 a month payments and promises of safe havens for themselves and their families. Um, you know, we we all know how we fell down on the job and ensuring that these U.S. trained Afghan soldiers, commandos, special forces uh, would be given safety um, in coming to the United States. They are basically uh, dead ducks if they stay in Afghanistan. We know that. They know that. And still, there are thousands of these um, former allies or current or still allies, but, you know, these former um, partners in the fight on the ground there who have yet to find sanctuary here in the United States and can't say, I mean, it's just so ironic that now they will be fighting our allies in, in the Ukraine. Uh, one of the generals said they don't want to fight, but they have no choice. Um, they ask me, give me a solution. What should we do if we go back to Afghanistan? The Taliban will kill us. So here, another instance of um, in which, you know, the United States had a policy for 20 years in Afghanistan. We spent uh, billions, if not trillions of dollars between that war and the war in Iraq, in part training military uh, to 
at some point take over responsibility for their own security to fight the shared enemy. In that case, it was the Taliban. And um, we let them down. We let them down um, in, in so many ways. Uh, but we let them down when we left and then didn't give them any hope for the future, if not uh, safety for the future. And, and now they're turning to our quote unquote enemies uh, to not only to live, but to, to provide some sustenance for themselves and their families. And it's and it's an unfortunate uh, example of the larger problem with the way that the U.S. has dealt with Afghanistan since the withdrawal. Of course, we we both agreed with the withdrawal and have been calling for it for some time. Uh, but there there has been a, a habit uh, since then of, of essentially washing our hands of the entire country and all of its problems, and and not uh, following through on any of the promises made to the people that had been fighting alongside our forces for all those years. And so I, I think that is a, it is really a, a shameful case of uh, falling down on the job, of, of not finishing the job, so to speak, in, in the sense that we we did say we were going to, to look after these people uh, even when we were leaving and, and simply haven't done that. Uh, to, you know, together with the, the very extremely slow processing of the special visas uh, for Afghans that have worked for the Afghan government as well. Uh, this is a a, a big uh, black mark on on the administration's handling of that, uh, and and there will be as as we're seeing with these recruitment uh, stories, there will be consequences for that down the road uh, in ways that we weren't expecting. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so, what's your next your next headline? And so the the other one is actually it's a pair of stories, uh, but they they are linked. Uh, they're both from Somalia. Uh, the first one's from New York Times from last week. Uh, Somalia asks U.S. to step up drone strikes against Qaeda linked fighters, uh, which is the the headlines way of talking about Al Shabaab. Uh, the of course the the technical reason why the U.S. is involved in Somalia uh, is that Al Shabaab is considered to be an associated force of Al Qaeda, although in, in practice they're their practice of terrorism is uh, mainly li limited to uh, Somalia and its neighboring countries. Uh, so it's uh, right, right off the bat that the headline links it to the larger war on terror in a way that's potentially misleading. Uh, and the, the Somali government's position is worrisome because I think the Biden administration is inclined to listen to these requests. Uh, they've been uh, quite willing to continue the U.S. military mission in Somalia and to conduct drone strikes against Al-Qaeda. And I think they're they're willing to continue doing that and to do more of it. Uh, and then, of course, it's uh, that's a link to the ongoing uh, escalation hostilities between the Somali government and Al Shabaab, uh, which just got very ugly uh, with a, a car bombing over the weekend. This is last weekend uh, in Mogadishu, which killed at least a hundred people and injured hundreds more. Um, and so we're, we're seeing that the, the militarized approach to the fight in Somalia clearly has not improved security in Somalia. Al-Shabaab is, if anything, more lethal than it's ever been, uh, as these car bombings demonstrated. And so it, it raises the question of, of what we hope to achieve by simply by droning more people, uh, if that is in fact what the Biden administration chooses to do. Uh, it seems like this is a, a failed policy. It's widely recognized to be a failed policy. But it's it's just stuck on autopilot, and, and like the larger war on terror, nobody is 
paying enough attention to it to to change course. Uh, and any attempt to change course is always then pilloried as being quote unquote soft on terrorism, even though uh, clearly the militarized approach to counterterrorism that we've been relying on for the last 15 years has done nothing but get a lot more Somalis killed. So it's uh, it's disturbing that we, we seem to be stuck in this cycle and, and nobody has a clear way out. Uh, and so those those stories uh, needed to be a, a little more attention than they have received. You know, um, Michael Horton, who is a uh, an American scholar, and he has done a lot of writing on both Yemen and uh, Somalia, uh, Horn of Africa, and he has done a lot of writing on Somaliland, neighboring Somaliland, and he talks a lot about how Somaliland is one of the the few African countries that has really turned away any foreign assistance, whether that has been military or otherwise, they don't want the intervention. And, you know, I'm sure there, there, that there's more to the argument, but I find uh, Michael's writing on this very compelling, that uh, they do not have a U.S. counterterrorism program. Do they have um, problems with terrorism? Yes. And piracy? Yes. But nothing to the extent to which uh, neighboring Somalia has had. Um, but yet neighboring Somalia has had a U.S. military presence in that country for three decades. And like you said, it has done nothing to make that place or the people any safer. And it's just so sad that we're, we're, we, we're still talking about car bombings and Al-Shabaab and, and U.S. drone strikes. You know, you're right. Biden doesn't appear to be interested in scaling back or ending the drone war. Uh, he's talking about changing the rules uh, back to Obama era rules in which the White House has more control over kill lists. Um, but as you and I know, that is not a solution to the problem, just having the White House um, pick and choose who is on our um, targeting list. So um, yeah, I, it is an, a very unfortunate story there in Somalia today. Uh, my last headline is uh, from Axios uh, yesterday, meaning Monday, um, in which they quote, um, you know, from a Carnegie endowment event, the U.S. envoy for Iran, Rob Malley, basically saying that the Biden administration is not going to waste time, quote unquote, on trying to revive the Iran nuclear deal at this time, considering the protests, the current protests and ensuing crackdown on protesters. So I really feel like this is the death knell of the JCPOA. I mean, it could be revived after the midterms, after the protests. We don't know how um, events in Tehran are going, you know, what's going to happen with the protests and how hard they will crack down on, on protesters in the end. But I feel like this administration was never really interested in um, pursuing a revival of this very important nuclear deal. I, I feel their hearts weren't in, maybe I'm not, cannot speak for uh, UN envoy Rob Malley or folks in the State Department but, if, you know, in regards to the White House itself, I felt like Biden's heart was never fully in it, um, mostly probably because of the politics surrounding the deal. Some of the top Democrats in uh, the Foreign Policy Committee and elsewhere, like Bob Menendez, have been vocally opposed 
to the U.S. getting back into the deal. And so this is, has provided a real problem, political problem for the Biden administration during a, a very uh, fraught year uh, for him and uh, midterms that are not expected to go very well for Democrats. So nobody seemed to be especially surprised that Biden wasn't hard over on getting this deal done before these elections. But it does seem like, you know, whether it be these protests, or which are um, the protests and, and the crackdowns on the protests are, are awful, not excusing any of that. But uh, the administration does seem to have used these and other um, uh, external events involving Iran uh, as excuses for not fully pursuing this deal, which I think, you know, you and I agree and many smart people in this town agree that this deal is necessary to keeping the region safe and, and to moving and moving beyond so we can have some better relations uh, with Iran um, and its neighbors can feel safe. So, you know, it's, 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 it's very unfortunate. Well, definitely. And I mean, the fact that we're here in October, no, now November, excuse me, it's now November of 2022. Uh, and we're still talking about the possibility of reviving the JCPOA, which should have happened 18 months ago, uh, is an indication of how, uninterested the Biden administration has been in getting this done. Uh, if if they had wanted to do it quickly, they they had an opportunity to do it quickly back at the beginning of their term of the president's term. And they chose instead to go this very slow, painful route of renegotiating and sort of reinventing the wheel. And it it ended up kind of blowing up in their face when uh, the new government came in under Raisi and uh, the 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 former administration that might have been willing to strike a bargain with them uh, was no longer in power. And so really for the last, well, last year and a half now, since the Iranian presidential election, uh, the U.S. and Iran have been in a kind of holding pattern. Uh, neither side really prepared to make the concessions needed. Uh, and the, the U.S. insisting on being a, sort of a stickler for only the, the bare bones language of the JCPOA being a legitimate basis for any negotiation. Any other issues are deemed extraneous and uh, are therefore considered to be non-starters by our side. And and the Iranian side has in turn dug in and become more intransigent uh, about their demands. And so it's it's really been a a display of of stubbornness and, and hardline attitudes prevailing over a more reasonable and uh, flexible approach to these talks. And so it's uh, it's been very disappointing to see. I, I suppose I understand why they're not eager to do anything about it now, especially as the elections approach, uh, because, of course, the, the, the optics of doing any sort of deal with a repressive government are always rather bad, and they're especially bad when you're in the middle of, uh, when you're seeing a, a lot of protests being violently put down. And so I, you know, I understand why they certainly aren't going to lift a finger now, but there's really been no excuse for them to have dawdled and wasted all that time up till now, uh, because there there will always be things that happen uh, with these sorts of governments uh, that can then be used as a reason not to proceed with diplomatic engagement. Uh, but you have to consider the costs of letting this agreement fall apart, and I don't think there's been enough attention paid to that. Because if the agreement does fall apart and Iran's nuclear program is then 
unconstrained by the restrictions contained in that agreement, uh, then you're looking at a potential crisis with Iran in the new year, or, or possibly in 2024, uh, where there will be a significant push to take military action against Iranian facilities, uh, with all of the attendant risks and, and dangers that come with that. And that that would be obviously immeasurably worse for the U.S. and for Iran if that were to come to pass. And, and that's what we're trying to avert by keeping this deal alive. And, I, and the, the lack of urgency on the part of both our government and theirs uh, on this point uh, really does baffle me a bit. Um, well, what is it they expect will be better about a world without this agreement? Uh, I, I just don't understand it. We'd like to introduce David Hendrickson to the show today. David is president of the John Quincy Adams Society and professor emeritus of political science at Colorado College. He has written many books on U.S. foreign policy, including Republic and Peril, American Empire and the Liberal Tradition, Union Nation or Empire, the American Debate over International Relations. And he has a new book coming out on John Quincy Adams. So, Welcome, David, to the show. Glad to be here. Thank you. Uh, I'm you know, a big admirer of your writing, of your books, of your thinking, and would love to hear more about your new book. Is it out yet? Yes. Awesome. Okay. So please tell us about it. Uh, well, uh, this was my first task on becoming president of the John Quincy Adams Society, and uh, I, uh, I wanted to give young people a glimpse of our namesake. And uh, I think that young people today encounter the first and second founders of the Republic more often as objects of uh, unthinking denunciation than of anything else. But Adams was really a remarkable character and uh, a very courageous man, principled statesman, uh, who's also extremely interesting because he really represents uh, in some ways, uh, both the establishment as well as dissenting traditions in American foreign policy. So the work consists of two parts. In the first part, I examine uh, Adam's life and career, his thought in relation to the problems of his own time. And then I have a second section uh, called Six Lessons from the Founding, in which I examine uh, Adam's ideas in relationship to six different ideas uh, power, uh, law, independence, peace, liberty, and union, and uh, try to draw some conclusions at a very broad level with respect to the course that the United States has taken uh, above all in the 21st century, contrasting Adam's thought with that uh, above all of the, uh, the call to end tyranny that one encounters in the second inaugural of George Bush. And, you know, just to, you know, just to, um, you know, remind the audience or if they're looking for the book, it's called Freedom, Independence, Peace, John Quincy Adams and American Foreign Policy. Yeah, you can find that on Barnes and Noble. Awesome. Okay. That's where it is. 
So you mentioned a little bit about uh, today's times. And uh, I mean, while you were doing your research, and I, I, I probably had a lot of this in your files and in your head already, but was there anything that came across you in your research that really that you said, this is really resonant for today. And I want to convey this me message to younger generations, um, it, you know, contextualizing John Quincy Adams and his his concerns, his fears and hopes for, for the Republic as we see the United States today um, on the cusp of perhaps another war or two in Russia and China. Well, the, the great uh, lesson that Adams taught is contained in his famous 4th of July address of 1821, in which he warns the United States not to go abroad in search of monsters to destroy and says that were we to do so, were we, take up the, were we to take up the cause of others, uh, our maxims would inevitably change from liberty to force. And I think that the last 20 years, uh, perhaps longer, is a startling demonstration of that. Uh, we owe so much of the loss of liberty to the uh, kind of pretensions that the United States has undertaken in the world. Uh, a surveillance state, uh, this inordinate influence of uh, military thinking and military officers over civilian decision-making, which upends the traditional understanding uh, of a liberal polity. Uh, the, uh, the idea that force itself is the remedy for all of the problems in the world that one finds in uh, a dozen different venues uh, with respect to the conduct of American foreign policy. So Adams is extremely prescient with regard to those questions. And that uh, that 4th of July address, of course, is very well known, but there's one uh, data point, as it were, that speaks most profoundly to our current circumstances. It's that. Yeah. And, you know, I, I'm wondering, where did it all go wrong? Was it World War II when we started wrapping up uh, our moral aspirations uh, with our foreign policy aspirations, uh, the idea of, of the good and just war and the concept of the United States um, helping to spread liberty and to make democracies in our own image and the that, that and the sort of willingness to use the military to do that was was that sentiment was that 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 push cemented in world war ii because it seems that we've gone way beyond what john quincy adams had even warned about 200 yeah. years ago there's a famous uh, statement from thomas paine unfair about George Washington asking the question whether he was uh, an apostate or an imposter, whether he had abandoned good principles or whether he ever had any. And uh, that question can be asked about American foreign policy. I think that the, the course we've taken in the last 20 years is, uh, you know, the A plus ultra, as it were, of this tendency, but it can be traced back much further uh, to figures such as Wilson, um, I'm not inclined to contest the justification of the United States for entering the Second World War. Uh, I think there's a lot of 
you know, features of that struggle which were necessary. But it is true that it saddled us with a set of institutions that have been applied to uh, uh, causes that are much less just and much less necessary. And I think that's, you know, in a sense, one of the tragedies of American history that a just war has been appropriated for uh, unjust purposes, uh, which is something that I would say about virtually all of our military engagements of the last 20 years. Also, too, I would point out that figures such as Wilson, uh, though he did have the crusader element within him, also had features of his thought which were much more limited than what has uh, come to be associated with neoconservatism. Wilson, for example, was a great believer in the principle of national independence. If they don't want democracy, it's none of my business, he said on going to Paris in 1919. And uh, the United States has, in effect, abandoned the principle of national uh, independence. We've abandoned the idea that the nations we deem enemies have, in effect, any rights at all and uh, presume to dictate to them uh, their forms of government as well as a laundry list of other things. And, uh, you know, by contrast, it's kind of striking to think that a figure such as Wilson should be, uh, that one can find in him uh, sources of limitation of, with regard to the uses of American power. But I think that just testifies to how uh, incredible are the kind of aspirations of the United States, a nation that constitutes some 3% of the world's population, to dictate to the entire planet uh, the, the prescriptions by which uh, all the polities of the world shall live. Definitely. And uh, thanks for coming on the show, David. We are happy to have you here. And uh, one of the things that I've found interesting about the debate surrounding John Quincy Adams in recent years is that there's been an attempt to try to reinvent him and to, and to reclaim him or to claim him for the first time for the interventionist side of the debate. Uh, Tom Cotton did this recently in a speech, I think, earlier this year. Uh, what, what is it about Adams' real foreign policy legacy that scares so many contemporary hawks that they feel the need to rewrite history uh, in that way? Well, I guess it's he nailed them. You know, he right. he delivered the most cogent critique. And you're certainly right that there has been a uh, an attempt to uh, rehabilitate him on the side of the hawks. Uh, uh, Angelo Corvillas' uh, latest, uh, just published, is uh, is one instance of that. Uh, John Lewis's Gaddis's security surprise in the American experience, published just after the uh, Iraq War began, is another. And uh, Kagan's Dangerous Nation, of course, does the same. And all of these are extremely unpersuasive and require us to ignore uh, fundamental aspects of, of Adams' thought. I mean, Adams as president, for example, and as secretary of state, was devoutly uh, against the idea of fighting a war with the Holy Alliance or with Great Britain. And uh, he wanted to preserve the existing state of things. He was very anxious, actually, about the possibility of such a war and was uh, definitely at that time a voice of restraint, yet, Adam, uh, yet uh, Gaddis converts him into a, uh, a clone of, uh, uh, of, of George Bush, uh, emphasizing you know, this manic need to use force preemptively, 
it's a total distortion of Adam's of Adam's thought. But uh, as to why they feel compelled to do that, I I, I don't really know. Uh, I, I think it's obviously the answer would have to be found in Adam's centrality mm-hmm. uh, as a as a thinker and uh, as an actor, uh, because he he is in in many respects the central figure of nineteenth century diplomacy. Uh, absolutely, and uh, and that's and one of the things that's interesting about his career is that he he was fully in favor of of uh, very strong U.S. engagement with other states, but in a, but through diplomatic engagement, and and not the use of force. And of course, later in his career in Congress, he was one of the the dissenting uh, minority in in the House opposing the Mexican War and viewing that as the sort of the beginning of the end of the Republican system in this country, uh, tending towards uh, towards an imperial uh, overreach. Yes, um, that's very striking about Adams. His some of his statements from the eighteen forties are uh, a very dark uh, warning about what this Mexican War symbolized, and uh, read today very prophetically in terms of the consequences. That's a striking feature. People forget that about the Mexican War. They think that this great debate uh, arose principally, uh, as in Stephen Kinzer's recent book, uh, over, uh, over the uh, conquest of the Philippines and the Spanish-American War. But all of the great themes, the anti-imperial themes, are stated by figures such as Adams in the context of the Mexican War. And um, I, that I think remembering that is very important and understanding the overall architecture of Adams thought. He's often regarded as as America's greatest expansionist. But I make the argument that his ideas of expansion uh, were always subordinated to his belief in the Union as well as his more fundamental belief in the principles of liberty. Hence, he was opposed to uh, bringing Texas in with a slaveholding constitution. Right. And yeah, and of course, his anti-slavery convictions were a major part of that. Um, but but he was also opposed to uh, expansion by conquest. He he had no problem acquiring territory through negotiations, uh, but but he he clearly drew the line uh, at conquest. Uh, and and that's uh, I think the the greatest rebuke to the sort of the the militarists who tried to adopt him. Uh, turning to your earlier book, Republican Peril. Uh, you outline a renovation of U.S. foreign policy uh, wh- where we might go uh, in the future. Uh, you call this a new internationalism that is neither militarized globalism nor aggressive nationalism. Uh, so uh, as you see it, what is the role for the U.S. and the world under this new internationalism? Uh, well, I, I have to say that I'm I'm just absolutely petrified by the course of American foreign policy. We have gotten ourselves into a situation in which we're effectively on the cusp of war in three different theaters, in Europe against Russia, in East Asia against China, and in the Middle East against Iran. And uh, one would be hard-pressed to know which of those uh, venues is most likely to push us into a war, but any such war uh, against those powers would be totally different uh, far more dangerous than anything we encountered over the last 20 years when, after all, we fought against states that were relatively weak and were unsuccessful, it may be added, even with, with respect to them. Uh, but I think the, the bottom line now is that our alliances 
have become a threat to American security. Our commitments across the world uh, to Ukraine, uh, to Taiwan, above all, have become a threat to American security and therefore require reconsideration of America's alliances. Now, I've always been a friend to uh, to NATO and to to the uh, to the U.S.-Japanese relationship, but if we consider the the course that NATO has taken in the post-Cold War era, it's totally different from what it was during the Cold War. It was a force for stability then. Uh, now its doctrines are permanent revolution and revisionism, and uh, those doctrines have uh, have played a central role in the uh, in the onset of the war. Uh, 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 between Russia and Ukraine. In effect, we encouraged, pushed Ukraine to become an anti-Russia, helped foster a coup in 2014 that uh, that made Ukraine an anti-Russia. And now we find ourselves in the situation where, uh, you know, both advance and retreat uh, seem extremely hazardous. Uh, I mean, retreat seems impossible. Advance seems <laughs> to threaten uh, uh you know, a conflict with a nuclear power, with all of the inherent dangers that that poses. I would call it a new internationalism. I mean, in part, it's an old internationalism that encourages the United States to return to ideas that were once central to the American diplomatic tradition. That is belief in a world that's made safe for diversity rather than a one-size-fits-all model in which uh, all are to, uh, to, to, to bow to the American system. Uh, it's a new internationalism, too, because I do think there are a, a, a set of, of threats, uh, climate change, uh, pandemics, uh, you know, the fisheries, uh, any number of, of dangers that require cooperation uh, among all of the great states. And uh, the United States says in its recent national security support that oh, we don't want a world of blocks, but American policy is creating that world of blocks, a very rigid uh, uh, system in which, uh, uh, you know, three quarters of humanity is uh, outcasted or ostracized. And I don't think that any of our global problems can be addressed, much less solved uh, with that kind of attitude. Uh, so uh, internationalism, you know, is one of these uh, slippery concepts that uh, people interpret in different ways. I think there's a lot of value in, in the fundamental internationalist ideas as they existed uh, in the uh, in the salad days. National independence being one of those central ideas. Uh, uh, but the kind of internationalism that we've had uh, over the last 20 years has been far more aggressive and I think is antithetical to the uh, uh, the true dictates of an international posture. Well, I think we're out of time now, uh, so I'll just uh, wrap and uh, say thanks again uh, to our guest, David Hendrickson. Uh, we really appreciate it, and uh, look for his new book, uh, Freedom, Independence, Peace, John Quincy Adams and American Foreign Policy, uh, which you can get through Barnes & Noble. Thanks very much. Thank you. Thanks, David. Thank you again for tuning into today's episode. If you enjoy and value real conversations such as these, please leave us a five-star rating on your favorite podcaster of choice. Right now, Crashing the War Party can be found on Stitcher, TuneIn, and at Substack 
at crashingthewarparty.substack.com, where you can also sign up for our newsletter. Special thanks to our editor, Remzo W. Martinez, the Crashing the War Party team, and to you, our listeners. Let's create a more peaceful world, one episode at a time.